Well, good afternoon, everyone. Good to see you virtually again. Welcome to our final, yes, that's right, our final at-home edition of our Banner Lecture Series. We're so pleased to be able to open to the public again uh, July 1st. So we hope that you'll you'll come by and see us uh, and we will start uh, doing Banner Lectures again live in, uh, in the museum, uh, starting with our next lecture on July 15th. But uh, first of all, as always, thank you so much for your support. We could not do this without you. Uh, we're, we're so pleased that you stuck with us through through the COVID crisis. And um, now it looks like we're coming out on the other end uh, and uh, we're very excited uh, to be opening the museum back up again. Today's lecture uh, will be given by Dr. Vanessa Holden. We're so glad to have Vanessa with us. She is an assistant professor of history and African-American and Africania studies at the University of Kentucky. Uh, in addition to writing for academic publications, Dr. Holden has authored content for Process, a blog for American history and Black Perspectives in the Junto, a group blog on early American history. She co-organizes the Queering Slavery Working Group and recently received the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences Promotion of Diversity and Inclusion Award. Today, Dr. Holden will speak on her forthcoming book, which is coming out on July 13th, Surviving Southampton African-American Women and Resistance in Nat Turner's Community. She will discuss her research process, uh, which I hope will include some mention of uh, her Mellon Fellowship here at the VMHC, uh, the types of materials that reveal Black women's history of Southampton County, Virginia, and how women contributed to America's most famous slave rebellion, often called Nat Turner's Rebellion. Please welcome Dr. Vanessa Holden. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks so much for having me here today. Uh, I'm really excited to kick off uh, book events in Virginia, um, even if virtually. Uh, and I just want to say thank you so much for organizing this and for having me here today. Um, a special shout out to everyone in your reading room who helped me back in 2009 when I was doing work on what became Surviving Southampton. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I'm presenting on Shawnee ancestral lands. Uh, today, I'll be speaking about Chernahawka or Nottaway lands and what the English named Virginia. The Chernahawka, Nottaway, uh, though included only briefly um, in the book, um, were and are present in Southampton County today. And I'm happy to speak about them uh, to the best of my knowledge during question and answer. They, along with the Semen, were the first to make geographies of resistance with the English only song incursion, surveillance, and control. Grandma ran out and struck Nat in the mouth, knocking the blood out and asked him, why did you take my son away? In the summer of 1937, when Susie R.C. Byrd interviewed Alan Crawford for the Works Progress Administration, uh, or the WPA's project to interview people who were once enslaved, um, at the time people called ex-slaves, she made sure to ask him about slave rebellion and resistance. After all, he was from the county that produced America's most famous slave rebellion. He talked about being from Nat Turner's neighborhood, I was bred and born and reared within three miles of Nat Turner's insurrection, Travis Place, he said. 
Of course, he was too young to have been alive during the Southampton Rebellion. And as with other WPA interviewees, he remembered his enslaved childhood, the stories that adults passed on to him, and his own family's memory of Nat Turner. And that memory was what Crawford described um, that really centered his grandmother, a memory that was full of grief and full of loss and anger, so burning hot that the family story became that she had struck Nat Turner so hard, blood ran down his face. Crawford's version of other rebellion events is not full of brave male slave rebels. I mean, read, read against other extant sources, he's not particularly accurate when it comes to what happened along the rebellion route. His story, relayed through layers of memory, is primarily a story of enslaved women. I believe in asking enslaved people, um, and by that I mean the sources we have uh, mediated in the ways that they're mediated, uh, what happened and what took place. For Crawford's grandmother, the place that her son Henry once occupied was what was taken by the Southampton Rebellion. Her grandson relayed this grief across generations, never not surviving the rebellion that had taken so many from places, spaces, and geographies around the county in August of 1831. I'm a scholar who's interested in freedom-making praxis. I'm interested in how enslaved people and enslaved women in particular made freedom for themselves. Enslaved people defined and made freedom in ways that historians often overlook. Um, and one of those ways is what I'm gonna highlight today in my talk about my forthcoming book. Um, and that is uh, the community's commitment to rearing and training children and youth. Women like Alan Crawford's grandmother have been cast as race traders and collaborators with whites from the early historicization of the Southampton Rebellion. One 21st century scholar refers to black women in Southampton County as quote, an insidious sisterhood, end quote, intent on thwarting the rebellion at every turn. Today's talk is in some ways about that space between her hand and Nat Turner's face. Survivor is a term that we use for people who endure. Uh, survivor is also a term that we use for the bereaved. And the black communities of Southampton County were full of people who lived both of those meanings. Black communities considered training children to be part of their labor of survival. When questioned by a local lawyer about his vision for revolt, his execution of strategy, and his reason for murdering every white man, woman, and child he and his co-conspirators came across in late August of 1831, Nat Turner began with his childhood. Specifically, he began with his family and his community. He talked about his mother and father. He talked about his grandmother's conviction that he was special, how his father, mother, and grandmother encouraged him to recognize and live up to what historian Dinah Rooney Berry would call his soul value. If Nat Turner began his story with family, community, black women, and his childhood, then I argue we should too. Um, so now I'm gonna give you a sense for how the book is built, so you have an idea of how it's laid out. Um, and I'll highlight the chapter that a lot of my talk today is coming from. Um, and then I'll move on to the how. Um, how do I know what I know? 
Um, I began my research by asking simply, where are black women? Um, black women actually outnumbered white women in Southampton County in the antebellum period. Uh, so the simple answer from census records is black women were everywhere. Uh, but as I looked into black women and black women's lives, other communities became more apparent. Uh, so free people of color, uh, children, both free and enslaved, suddenly became more visible as I looked into women's lives and their daily experiences in the county. The first chapter of the book is really about geographies of surveillance and control, the ways that white enslavers attempted to control African-Americans' mobility um, and attempted to control their actions uh, throughout any given day, from the use of slave patrols uh, to violence and other surveillance strategies. I look at basically what were people resisting? What did people have to thwart to make freedom? Uh, the second chapter of the book is about enslaved women uh, and their unique place on plantations and farms in antebellum Southampton County. Um, I look at the ways that women participated in a much longer tradition of resistance uh, before the rebellion took place to think about the ways that they fit into a large-scale violent revolt. Um, I also look at the significant population of free people of color in Southampton County. Uh, Southampton County was the, had the third highest population of free people of color at the time of the rebellion. Um, and so looking for them and their stories, uh, they'll play a role towards the end of today's talk, uh, helped me to see the ways that really free people were embedded um, in the black community and enslaved communities in the county. Um, a lot of today's talk comes from the fourth chapter, Generation Resistance and Survival, African-American Children and the Southampton Rebellion, um, mostly because of some of the sources I came across when I was doing work in the archives at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I talked about how I use the institution's collections to help me uh, really build out the stories that I tell. And finally, I deal with the after. Uh, a lot of stories about the rebellion end uh, with it being thwarted after about 48 hours and quickly move on to broader national issues of the fallout from the rebellion. I'm really interested in how folks managed to survive and continue living in the county after such a traumatic um, and really, uh, you know, society shifting event. So today's big question that I'm going to talk about uh, is my question resistance, uh, generation resistance and survival. How are children and youth involved in community resistance? Um, before we get into the story of one youth who ends up being pivotal and important to the story of the rebellion, I want to make sure that we're situated in time and place. Um, I know that there are probably many Virginians joining us today and you're familiar with the geography of Virginia, uh, but just to make sure that we all understand where exactly Southampton County is uh, and some of the major geographic features of the county that come into play in the rebellion route, I'm gonna walk us quickly uh, through some basic geography. Uh, so this is a map of antebellum Virginia and Southampton County is right along the border with, South, with North Carolina. Um, it's a very swampy part of 
the Commonwealth. Um, and it's, it's not right next to, but it has close enough proximity to the Dismal Swamp. We zoom in a little bit to give you a sense of how the county is built out. Um, there's the county. A major geographic feature that becomes very important to the rebellion and, and how the rebellion is ultimately thwarted by local militia is the Nottaway River, uh, so named for the area's first, first nations. It actually bisects the county, and most of the rebellion took place on the southern side of the river. Uh, Jerusalem, the county seat, now Cortland, Virginia, um, is right on the other side of the river. Um, and Cypress Bridge is the place where uh, enslaved rebels attempted to cross so that they could invade Jerusalem. So it's a, a key point um, in actually putting the rebellion down. If we zoom in a little closer on the area uh, where most of the rebellion took place, um, here's our Here's our quick landmark of the Nottoway River to give you a sense of where I'm talking about. Um, and today's action is actually gonna take place very, very close to where the rebellion began, um, which was at Cabin Pond, right near the Joseph Travis place. Um, and just for a little geographic um, anchoring, here's the Peter Edwards place where Alan Crawford's grandmother was enslaved. Uh, for quick reference a little bit later, that Cypress Bridge and Nat Turner actually hid out in a cave very close to Cabin Pond um, and also very close to the Joseph Travis place where he was once enslaved. I wanna talk about a young man named Moses. Uh, 13 years old in 1831, he was really on the cusp of changing status uh, from a half hand, so an enslaved person who could be expected to do half of the work of a fully grown enslaved adult into a fully recognized full hand, uh, what we might call adolescence in our own language, but a type of developmental stage that wasn't really part of uh, what antebellum people uh, would have thought of. They would have thought of an enslaved youth like Moses in terms of his capacity to work. Moses turned in for the night on August 21st, 1831, just like he had each night before in the Travis kitchen. A coveted spot in winter, the kitchen would have been less pleasant a place to bed down in Southampton's August heat. Nothing particularly remarkable happened that evening. Jack, an enslaved man from a neighboring farm who had family on the Travis place, was there before he turned in. But Jack was a familiar face who often visited. When Mo Moses woke up in the very early hours of August 22nd, Jack's familiar face was one he remembered in the middle of a striking scene. Men, men he knew and some he lived with, were drilling with weapons and farm implements like a militia in the Travis yard. And Jack was sick, head in hands, visibly upset. Moses wouldn't have known yet at that moment just what, had, what he'd woken up into. But in short order, in the coming 48 hours or so, word would spread about the trouble in Southampton. 
trouble that began where Moses was enslaved, along with a man who was soon to become America's most famous slave rebel, Nat Turner. By the time Moses saw Jack upset in the Travis yard, all but one of the white residents of the farm and carriage maker shop were dead, murdered while they slept. Two things happened very quickly. The men decided that Moses was going with them when they left to go on to the next farm. And they realized that they'd forgotten the Travis's infant. So young, no name is mentioned in extant records. Two men returned to the house, found the infant and murdered it. Generation and the future of both enslavers and the enslaved were clearly on their minds. Post-rebellion, we know that Moses was taken up by these men and taken along the rebellion route because he talks about it when he's incarcerated in Southampton's jailhouse in Jerusalem and when he testifies in multiple trials for the prosecution of other enslaved people. He himself is actually indicted for participation in the rebellion. Of his life before the rebellion, we know that he was enslaved by Putnam Moore at Joseph Travis's place. And we know some of the demographics of the Travis place uh, that make it a little easier to paint a picture of what Moses's life would have been like. He was in fact uh, enslaved by Putnam Moore, actually a child at the time, uh, who was the stepson of Joseph Travis. Uh, Joseph Travis sort of came up in the world when he, <laughs> when he married Sally Moore, a widow, uh, who brought a young son with her and a number of enslaved people, uh, 17 to be exact, into the marriage as well as property um, and really provided Travis with the means to set up his own shop uh, that was a cooperage, a wagon making shop and some blacksmithing went on there. Um, the enslaved people that she brought into the marriage as part of her dower um, and part of her young son's inheritance. They did a lot of the agricultural labor on the place. Um, and the Travis place was like a lot of farms and plantations in Southampton County. Uh, enslaved people worked to raise cattle and hogs, to raise fodder, uh, to raise corn, cotton, and to press uh, local apples uh, <laughs> to make cider. Um, there's also a, a sort of uh, unique Southampton County brandy that's famous at the time. There would have been a number of tasks throughout the day, uh, particularly for a young person like uh, Moses to have completed. He was actually uh, in a number, among a number of children and youth um, of the 17 enslaved people present on the Travis Place. Six were under the age of 10 uh, and Moses was one of three or four who would have been in that teenage range. So you hear 17 enslaved people, it may sound like a, a large holding, but really you have to think about the ages of the people who are included in that holding. Which of course leaves us with the question, what exactly was Moses doing during the rebellion? And why would these men take him along um, and not smaller children? Um, the answer lies in the dynamics of labor um, and the, the sort of expectation that enslaved adults wouldn't simply watch enslaved children or mind them, um, but would actually teach them to do 
tasks that needed to be completed throughout the day. In the antebellum period, most children did chores uh, and were expected to do some form of work during the day. Only the very wealthy could afford to have their children tutored uh, beyond the basics of literacy um, and basic arithmetic. So most children were expected to do some work and learn how to do some tasks, often shadowing adults throughout the day. Um, and this was particularly true for enslaved children, uh, children who would come to realize that their capacity to labor would often really mark their ability to survive enslavement. Um, most children began helping with simple tasks as young as four or five, and sometimes even younger. Um, that's why I really like this image, even though it's from after emancipation of an older enslaved woman uh, surrounded by younger enslaved people, helping with one of many tasks needed to process tobacco leaves. Um, you see the very young toddler sitting down um, and you know maybe sort of fumbling a little bit. Um, and you see children who are a little bit older learning to do this really basic task. Um, this is how work got done. This is how work happened, particularly on a place like the Travises where you had a number of enslaved people under the age of 10. Um, they were not left idle all day. They had to participate in the work life of a working farm. Um, enslaved children had to learn to survive white violence at an early age. A lot of WPA narrators actually talk about their enslaved childhoods. And they talk about the ways that enslaved adults help them survive uh, particularly brutal labor regimes from giving them some of their cotton harvest so that they could make weight and escape brutal beatings to teaching them how to hide rocks in a cotton sack um, to showing them um, how to make themselves less conspicuous throughout the workday. Um, enslaved adults really not only had to teach children how to work, but they had to teach them how to work in the right way to avoid and thwart uh, different systems of punishment. This was part of their everyday lives. Uh, Moses would have had plenty to do as an older child uh, or youth. He wasn't strong enough to pull the weight of an adult, but he could tend stock and help. He'd have spent his entire 13 years learning from adults how to complete different tasks. He'd also have been used to run messages and small goods between farms in the neighborhood. He'd have had a labor-related reason to be just about anywhere in the neighborhood at any moment during the workday. And that, that mobility really facilitated by his youth would have been particularly helpful to men who say we're going to travel the county involved in a slave rebellion. His age probably um, made them think twice about leaving him behind. He was certainly old enough uh, to warn people. Um, and in some ways, he was old enough to be trained uh, in the ways of rebellion. We learn from his testimonies in a number of court cases exactly what he was up to over the course of the rebellion. Um, he actually witnessed firsthand quite a few of the rebellion's events. Um, and he was with the rebels from the very first site of the rebellion. Local justices really wanted to make sure that power was in the right sort of white leader's hands post-rebellion. Uh, so they imprisoned roughly 50 enslaved and free black people in hopes of 
giving them hearings and trying um, the enslaved people for potentially being involved in the rebellion. Um, it's important to note that these trials, trials that Moses would not have had a choice about testifying in, uh, were less about finding out what exactly had happened during the rebellion and more about making sure that the owners, that the enslavers of particular enslaved people were compensated for a loss of property. If the militia simply murdered anyone that they thought uh, could possibly be involved, enslavers would not have received compensation from the Commonwealth of Virginia. So it was really important for enslavers to make sure that they had an official court valuation of any enslaved property that might have been involved. If the state or the Commonwealth were to execute their enslaved property, then the Commonwealth owed those enslavers compensation. So these trials really are about not just restoring order, but restoring the right sort of order. These trials also took place in a court environment uh, that's really important to, to make clear. Uh, this is a map of downtown Jerusalem, Virginia in 1831, and it's, it's now Portland. Um, this main street still exists there, though there's quite, <laughs> quite a few more buildings uh, in Portland today. Um, but to give a sense of where exactly these trials are taking place and what environment Moses is in when he's giving testimonies about what he saw, um, here's the jailhouse where uh, enslaved and free prisoners were held. This is the county clerk's office, and here's the courthouse. Um, and it's important to note that all of that property around was considered common ground. Uh, so even if uh, spectators and community members weren't physically inside of the courthouse, all of that ground was also seen as a place of debate, um, a place where whatever was happening in the court, a space where that court was really accountable to those citizens outside, so that walk from the jailhouse into the courthouse for a trial um, or in the jailhouse being interviewed, um, you would have been surrounded by a whole community really invested in making sure that this rebellion was over. The hanging tree was also fully visible from all of these spaces. So really, uh, as people are being executed towards the height of the trials, um, those executions are happening. They can be seen from the jailhouse, from the courthouse. Uh, so all of this is, is really quite compact and close. It's a fairly charged environment. In all, there were 18 executions. 12 individuals uh, were recommended to have their, their sentences commuted to transport out of the state. Two individuals were killed before capture and seven were killed upon capture. Um, around eight participants in the rebellion are presumed killed. While Moses witnessed and gave testimony for the prosecution, one theme um, across all of his testimonies is the doubt he casts on defendants' willingness to participate. Um, when he testified about knowing uh, that Jack was particularly upset in the front yard, when he talked about three other youth, Nathan, Tom, and Davy, who were also scooped up by rebels and taken along on the rebellion route, he talked about how they couldn't have resisted being taken along and in this small way, he cast doubt, uh, doubt that could strategically be used uh, to help the cases of other people potentially convicted. 
Um, ultimately, Nathan, Tom, and Davey were convicted of participation, but like Moses, when he faced the court in his own trial later on, their sentences were uh, sent up to the governor of Virginia with a recommendation that they be sold from the state rather than executed. Spared from the gallows, sailed to the deep south, far from kith and kin, was another kind of death. But Moses's appearance teaches us one way that black children experienced the rebellion and the ways that not just everyday resistance, but even in this moment of acute rebellion, black adults found ways to incorporate uh, at least youth of the right gender uh, and of the right age into their plans for large scale violent rebellion. When I visited uh, Virginia's Museum of History and Culture to do work um, in the collections, I came across um, extensive holdings of both um, printed collections and then also individual indenture papers um, and became aware of a system that, that I wasn't fully aware of uh, when I began my research as a young graduate student. Um, and that's where I'd like to pivot for the last part of my talk talk about another way that uh, free children of color, um, so another way that black children appear in this broader story. When you look um, at some of the more popular printed sources about the rebellion, uh, you look at the records of those trials that I talked about, and they're very rich. They're rich to read for, for us to figure out some of what went on, what really happened along the rebellion route. Even though they're mediated in the ways that they are, they're still incredibly useful. But the other way to read the records and a way that I read the records in the final chapter of my book um, is to not just focus in on those trials, but to pull back and think about everything else that was happening, um, not just at the court, um, not just on the common ground, but everything that was happening on a given court date. To do that, I have to look at the entire minute book page or pages. So to give a quick example, um, this is what a minute book page looks like. Uh, this is from a microfilmed edition in, in real life. Um, they're very large uh, books. They're still in existence in Southampton County. Uh, you can see them in the county courthouse today. Um, and here is where on a minute book page, uh, one of the court dates during these trials begins. You actually have to turn the page. So about three and a half pages later, is where the first enslaved person's trial is, which means that all of that space, all of those notes taken down by a county clerk from memory after the court date, uh, there are no modern stenographers at this time. All of that uh, gives me an idea of who had come in and out of the courthouse that day, who was being paid for carrying out executions, what militia units still needed to be paid. And another piece, um, that allows me to track how another community in Southampton was managing to survive the rebellion's aftermath. Right here, uh, so before we even get to that trial, a group of free people of color appears at court to have their freedom read into the record. Uh, free people of color were required in Virginia at the time to register once a year and pay a small fee for that registry. Um, there is a call by local authorities to have free people register and confirm uh, their free status and their residency status in the county. Um, so peppered in between 
trials and executions and settlements of estates for people who were murdered during the rebellion are groups, often groups, of free people of color who are reading freedom really directly next to uh, trials that are meant to put uh, black people in the county in their place. One way that free people appeared uh, shortly before the trials and then in between trials and then after trials uh, is in the form of indentures. At the time, uh, the system of indenture or binding out children was a system used by minister, local ministers of the poor, both for white and black children to uh, find ways for them to be provided for when their parents couldn't take care of them. On one hand, it, it looks like a sort of social welfare system to take care of indigent children or the orphans who didn't have family who could take them. But it, it's also a, a fairly exploitative labor system. Children were bound out uh, until 18 if they were girls or 21 if they were boys. Uh, for white children, they were provided with very basic education, literacy, and basic sums. Um, but for black children, they were denied that basic education. And there are some prime working years that a uh, master who held one of these contracts would get from children. Sometimes they did learn a trade if they were boys, um, but overwhelmingly the indentures that exist in the county for black children were for agricultural labor or domestic labor. So again, keeping black children in a particular labor niche. But in the midst of these trials, um, a few parents show up to bind out their children. And I actually have their indenture papers as well as their place in those minute books. So Boy Whitfield, uh, so in September, really as the trials begin to pick up, his mother, Catherine Whitfield, appears in court to bind him out to William Cutler. Later on, as the trials are winding down, the birds arrive in court to bind out all of their children, Diddy, Nancy, Henry, Anne, Jane, and Jane Bird, between 11 and five years old, uh, to Benjamin Whitfield. Which begs the question, what, what is going on here? Why would these free parents do this um, in the midst of so much turmoil? Um, and one reason that they might do this uh, comes to light when you look at who exactly these white men were, who they were indenturing children to. Um, neither man, neither William Cutler or Benjamin Whitfield, owned enslaved people at the time. Um, and in fact, their land holdings were populated by free people of color. Um, Benjamin Whitfield was a descendant of someone who had actually set free a large holding of enslaved people. And they're not just any uh, right caretakers. These are places where these men's farms were places where their children would live among other free people of color. And having these specific labor contracts would have kept them in Southampton County. At the time, there were rumblings of expelling free Black people from, from Virginia. Uh, the Colonization Society would actually succeed over the next couple of years in sending a number of free Black Southamptonites to Liberia. There's sort of always this threat of expulsion. Uh, so by indenturing these children, they're managing to keep their children close, using an exploitative system 
to a very, very slight advantage uh, to make sure that their kids could stay near them in the county. Most free adults didn't live on their own land. Uh, they also had year-to-year -year labor contracts on local farms and plantations, and their material condition was very close to that of enslaved people. So if they had labor contracts tying them to the county and they wanted to make sure that their children definitely would stay in the county, this was one way to accomplish that. The county really was a tangle of different conditions at the end of the rebellion and African-Americans free and enslaved found ways to survive it. Looking at Moses's story, um, looking at the Bird's children or Boyd Whitfield's story, we can see how children factored in that generation, that the future of, uh, of freedom, uh, but also the future of slavery was on the mind of black adults as the rebellion took place and in its aftermath. In closing, I always like to remind uh, folks that I'm speaking to about the rebellion that uh, the Southampton County is, is still a place, <laughs> um, that it's not suspended in, in 1831. Uh, and that the term survivor, at least when we're talking about the bereaved, there's no expiration date for that term. There's no moment at which uh, one stops surviving uh, a traumatic event or a grievous situation. And survival is still very much a part in that uh, memory keeping, at least, in the county. Today, Nat Turner's descendants own the land on which she was once enslaved. Now, the edge of a field along a gravel road that leads to Cabin Pond, um, one of his descendants uh, now displays this sign. Um, and I like this because it speaks to the way that his own descendants, right? So uh, when we're thinking about children and we're thinking about generations moving forward, that, that this is how some of his own descendants remember him. Um, Nathaniel Nat Turner, illiterate minister, slave, and leader of the Southampton Slave Insurrection of August 21st, 1831, hidden caves near the site until his capture on October 30th, 1831. Um, the sign has been damaged um, and vandalized. Uh, the county recently replaced it, at least it had when I was in the county in 2019. Um, but I do think that it's, it's really important to note the ways that um, local people are at the forefront uh, remembering this rebellion. And, and many of them are actually descendants of either families that were very affected by the murders of the rebellion um, or uh, the part of the enslaved community that survived. Another important thing to think about um, is a huge, huge change in Southampton County. Um, one key site in the rebellion's aftermath is called Blackhead Signpost, um, where it is said uh, local militia placed African-Americans' heads on pikes as a warning. Um, and there was a road named after Blackhead Signpost in the county until this February, um, when the local community, after years of hard work, actually changed the, the road sign's name to Signpost Road. So still gesturing to the road's history without evoking the really painful, immediate, violent, uh, racist memory um, of where that signpost got its name in the street sign. Um, so for some quick geography, uh, here is that red dot is where the signpost was. Um, and this road that was actually present in the county at the time of the rebellion was named Blackhead Signpost. So it's now Signpost Road. 
Enslaved and free black people were incredibly savvy, um, both during and after the rebellion. After Nat Turner's capture in October and his execution in mid-November, while white Southamptonites tried to return to normal, declaring that the rebellion was over, the Southampton Rebellion really did linger on um, in memory. Um, white Southamptonites remained on high alert and African-Americans continued to adapt their resistance to new types of white vigilance um, in the county. Um, Alan Crawford, who we began today with as an elderly man in the 1930s, could still recite Southampton's detailed slave patrol schedule from his post-rebellion childhood. Until this past February, you could still drive down Blackhead Signpost Road. Um, so there are ways in which we're still grappling uh, with how exactly to survive this rebellion. And with that, um, I'm happy to take questions. Thanks, Vanessa. Absolutely fascinating uh, to have this fresh perspective on uh, this event in Virginia's history. And I really appreciate the way that you've connected present to past, which is something that we're trying to do at the VMHC. Uh, I also appreciate uh, a shout out to our collections uh, for people who haven't had an opportunity uh, either because of COVID or other circumstances to come here to do uh, research. It really is a tremendously rich resource uh, for uh, the study of enslaved peoples in Virginia. So uh, when we reopen in July, I hope you'll take advantage of the opportunity to come back uh, and do research here in the reading room. And uh, so with that, um, folks, uh, please be sure to sign in on Facebook or YouTube uh, to submit your questions or your comments. Um, I'm interested in learning a little bit more about uh, how the community feels about this as a legacy. Um, you know, this is something that that historians rarely have an opportunity to do is is to talk to descendants and uh, and get that kind of perspective uh, to connect present to past. And you had, you had started to to talk a little bit about that at the end of your your lecture, but I wonder whether you might expand on that a little bit more. Sure. Um, so I, I should say I don't I don't myself have any roots in Southampton County, um, so I'm not a member of the of the of the community there. Um, and I think it's really important as a researcher and a historian to say that um, because when I approach uh, descendants or I spend time in the county, I'm very aware that I'm an outsider, and also that this is still fraught history, it's still painful history, um, and it's still very present in the county. Um, Blackhead Signpost uh, was one road named after a significant rebellion site, but there's a Cabin Pond Road, there's a Porter House Road. Um, there are other roads named after significant sites where murders took place. Um, there are still uh, people with the last name Turner uh, who live in Southampton County. Uh, and some of them are descendants of Matt Turner. There are still descendants of white families that lost a number of ancestors, uh, including the current county clerk, Rick Francis, uh, is a descendant of a family that was almost completely wiped out in the rebellion. Um, and I would say in, in the current moment, I'm, I'm working with some historians at Christopher Newport to hopefully bring a, a virtual tour um, to the county um, I've worked on some signage in downtown Cortland. Um, uh, the local historical society has moved the Rebecca Vaughn house, the last place where people were murdered um, and are painstakingly restoring it. So I do think that there is a, is a, there's momentum and movement um, in both, you know, white and blacks 
Southampton County to preserve the memory of the significant event, um, to tell the truth about it, uh, to to think of ways of commemorating it that are respectful to just how painful this history is. Um, and I also think that there are ways that folks outside of official structures are working to preserve um, really important rebellion sites. So I displayed the sign, but um, some of Nat Turner's descendants uh, have also been curating what they believe to be the cave that he hid out in. And I think that that's also really important to note that um, folks have been holding on to artifacts, folks have been holding on to sites and taking care of them um, without, you know, larger institutions intervening. Um, Nat Turner's Bible is at the new museum in Washington, D.C. now because local people in Southampton saved it, um, you know, year after year. So I, I always like to, to end by highlighting that Southampton is still a place. It's still, it's still full of communities um, and descendants are doing a lot of really, um, really important work uh, to preserve um, their own legacy when it comes to this rebellion. And it's still painful. Um, it, it ultimately is a very bad story. It ends in a lot of death and grief. Um, and that's why I shifted a lot of my focus to survival because it it allows us to think through that bereavement at the same time that we think through um, the aftermath. So we have one question. Uh, how would you describe uh, the divide locally and the contesting of the narrative surrounding Turner's life and events in the insurrection? Um, I think, you know, uh, I respect, you know, local expertise. I think that folks um, have their own, you know, historical traditions and historical memory. Um, and I think, you know, that's curating that and keeping that alive from generation to generation is very different than what my job as a professional historian is. Um, and I, I think that, that that local memory and local tradition you know, that that can coexist with the kind of work that I do looking at documents um, and trying to trace things in a different way. Um, of course, there are family stories that get passed down. Um, of course, there are, you know, things that over time morph and, morph and change in oral histories. Uh, and I think that in that case, it's also really important to note that the place that this rebellion still has um, in local memory and, and local significance, that, that that historical memory is as much about the present as it is the past. That my job as an outsider and a professional historian is, is really different. Um, you know, what I'm trying to get at using historical methods, looking at these documents, looking at these materials, some of which many, many historians have looked at. Uh, this, is not an, this is not an understudied rebellion. Uh, I'm not, you know, I haven't discovered some sort of new uh, site of resistance. Uh, if you know any name in, you know, the history of slave rebellion in the United States, you probably know Nat Turner's. Um, so that that's, you know, I'm, I'm working with a very well-trod sources, a well-trod ground, but just asking different questions. Um, so it's my job to ask questions. It's my job to triangulate, you know, what people remember and what their grandparents told them um, with what I can track down. Um, but I, I don't like to get it, you know, I don't like to get 
involved in debates um, because I don't really think that it's the same work, you know, but that, that the work of preserving and the work of survival in a community on the ground, it, it's just really different than what I'm asked to do as a historian. And so I just have a lot of respect for folks who've been keeping up, you know, family heirlooms um, and family stories and family memories. Uh, yeah. So, so following up on that thread that this is an event in Virginia's history that's been well studied. Um, what, what did you find in the course of your research or in your oral histories uh, with, uh, with the local uh, folks in the community that was a, was a total surprise, something that, that uh, perhaps historians hadn't, hadn't either discovered or at least uh, assumed uh, previously? Um, really, you know, what I talked about today was a huge, <laughs> a huge shock. I didn't expect at all to be able to do work on enslaved and free children. Um, and as I came across uh, documents in your collections and the Library of Virginia's collections and realized how much existed about this system of labor, of indenture in the antebellum period, realized really started to scrutinize who exactly was in court giving testimonies, um, that there are a couple of youth uh, who are not only, uh, you know, prosecuted in their own cases, but but are also giving testimonies about what happened, um, that I started to pay attention a little bit more to, you know, how are these children and youth ending up in court um, giving these testimonies? Um, I was also surprised about free people of color. Um, I, you know, I expected to find enslaved people, um, but I expected to only find free people of color in really small numbers. Um, and uh, when I realized <laughs> after doing some work in the records that Southampton County at the time had the third highest population of free people of color, it actually would end up being about 20% of the black population of the county. So they were incredibly visible and incredibly important in the labor market. Um, I really could begin to think about, well, how are they embedded in black communities? And, it, you know, there's this hysteria about free people of color, that it's really them, that they're really the instigators. Um, but realizing that how visible and how important they were in the community, um, you know, that was, that was something that really turned my head. Um, I'd also say uh, doing a deep dive into the documents, um, a lot of the reason that women have been overlooked is because many of them appear in court and are testifying for the prosecution. Um, and so on the surface, that just looks like um, they're siding with enslavers. Um, but in reality, enslaved people did not have a choice about whether or not they were gonna give testimonies um, and free people of color were in an incredibly violent and precarious situation. So thinking through uh, how they actually, what they did and didn't reveal in their testimonies. Um, so women who, you know, they're only answering the questions that they're asked, but when you read Nat Turner's confessions, you realize that they also had almost certainly talked to him throughout the rebellion day or, that it's their place. Uh, one woman, Venus, lived on a farm 
that is exactly the place where Nat Turner found out that the that the alarm was out. Um, and she's actually perfectly positioned to have been the person to let him know that. Um, you know, things that don't come out in the court cases. Um, it's for that reason that I say that, like, I trust silence because it's actually a very useful uh, resistive technique and technique of evasion. So paying attention to what people weren't saying and then kind of working backwards to think about, well, wait a second, if, if this is where they were at that point in time, then that it doesn't make sense that they didn't know anything about it. Um, so there, you know, I have <laughs> a bunch of stories like that in the book uh, where thinking about what people aren't saying, thinking about whose names are not mentioned, becomes really helpful um, in uncovering what happened. And sometimes those things can be um, maybe not shocking, but just deeply intriguing. So speaking of deep in, intriguing, uh, you showed a, f a few primary sources in your, in your PowerPoint slides. Uh, was there anything that you discovered either in our collection or other collections that just uh, really wowed you and thought was a, a transformative moment in your research? Um, I'm particularly fortunate because uh, Southampton County is not uh, what's what's called in uh, Virginia historians speak a burnt county. Um, a number of counties in Virginia um, had almost all of their records destroyed during the American Civil War. And Southampton County is not one of them. Um, the original minute books still exist. You can still see them in the courthouse there. They are, as of the late 20th century, they've, they've been microfilmed. Um, you can get a hold of the you know, microfilmed versions of these minute books. Um, one thing that I was not at all expecting to find um, in special collections at the Library of Virginia are extensive, well, maybe saying extensive, extensive isn't the right way to say it, but finding records of local slave patrols and local slave patrol schedules, some of which are just scraps of paper that, uh, you know, militia captains are handing into local justices to get paid. Um, but I never expected to be able to map out slave patrol habits pre-1831. Um, that's the kind of documentation that can be kind of ephemeral. Um, and so the, the richness that exists in documents related to this rebellion, um, in some ways it hasn't even been fully tapped yet, even after my, you know, it hasn't been fully tapped yet, the ways you can reconstruct this community. Um, and yeah, so I'd say maybe the most, the thing I absolutely never would have imagined being able to find were those slave patrol records. So do you think that there's uh, fodder here for future research and a publication or uh, what, are your, what are your plans next uh, having just published this one? Right, um, so I'm, I'm at the University of Kentucky um, and I'm about to stop into the directorship of the Central Kentucky Slavery Initiative uh, project to both tell the black history of the University of Kentucky from its uh, early, early days in the 19th century as a couple different institutions to present, um, but also to really delve into the history of slavery in central Kentucky. There hasn't been a synthetic work about Kentucky slavery um, since the 1930s. Uh, the book is actually titled um, like Old Slavery Times in Kentucky. So that gives you an idea of its <laughs> point of view. Um, so the next big project is to figure out how to really talk about slavery in the bluegrass region 
um, and, and think through a really representative um, work. But of course, uh, part of that history, for, for part of that history and not an insignificant part, uh, Kentucky was Virginia. So I will in fact be back in Virginia uh, to do work on that part of the history. Um, so I never, never quite get away from Virginia and I'm fine with that. Um, I'll never quite, you know, there's a lot about this region that I currently live in that reminds me of my time in the Blue Ridge in college. Uh, the mountains are on, in a different direction, but I'll never quite, quite leave Virginia behind. Well, we look forward to welcoming you again uh, when you come to do research uh, at the BMHC. Uh, Dr. Vanessa Holden, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion today. Um, and uh, when the book does come out, uh, you should be able to purchase copies through the, the VMHC Museum Store uh, shop, virginiahistory.org. Uh, so again, uh, Vanessa, thank you so much. Uh, and folks, we welcome you back uh, next month when we reopen uh, on July 1st. Uh, hope to see you then. Hope to see you at our next banner lecture on July 15th as well. So thank you all again for your support and have a great afternoon. Bye-bye.